0: Father, once again, we're thankful for today. We're thankful to be encouraged with good music uh, that reminds us of your kindness to us and your purpose uh, in this world to bring redemption through your Son. Thank you so much that you're a personal God who has cared for us in this way. Now help us to understand even the significance of what Jesus has done uh, better or more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you talk about Jesus a lot. That's what someone said to me one time, and that someone was a Christian. Sort of begs the question, why why do we talk about Jesus so much? Why do we make such a big deal about Jesus to the point where even a Christian would say, Man, you talk about Jesus a lot. But what I would like to do this morning is look at Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament and have us be able to answer that question. Why why exalt Jesus? Um, Why talk about him so much? Why make such a big deal out of Jesus? Reasons for exalting Jesus. If you're new to the Bible, what we have not only are the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describing the history of what happened, we also have other places in the Bible, um, letters like Philippians, um, explaining the theology of it, if you will, explaining the meaning behind it. Um, yes, Jesus did these things. These things happened in his life. He did these things, and yet, what do they mean? What's the interpretation, if you will? What's God's interpretation of these things? In Philippians chapter 2 is, is a classic passage that helps us to understand why we would want to exalt Jesus. So much. If you're a note taker, I'm going to give seven reasons from our passage why we should exalt Jesus as much as we seek to. But before we actually get into the list of reasons, I'm going to go ahead and read verses, chapter 2, verses 6 and following. It's referring to Jesus according to the end of verse 5, and then it says, Who though he was in the form of God, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll stop there and start looking at some of the details. I want to answer the question, why exalt Jesus? Why exalt Him so much? Why make such a big deal out of Jesus? And this passage is going to help us. It's an awesome passage. We're just going to scratch the surface. Um, But it's worth Worth seeing. What's, what's the big deal with Jesus anyway? First reason we can see from our passage, let's exalt Jesus because he is divine. Because he's divine. He's, he's none other than God. In verse 6, it does say, doesn't it? Who though he was in the form of God. Well, if you're in the form of God, you should be exalted. Did not count equality with God. Oh, he, does, he doesn't count equality with God, and yet... That's pointing out the obvious. He has equality with God. A thing to be grasped. We make a big deal out of Jesus because, by definition, if you have equality with God, you're in the form of God, you're a big deal. If there's only one true living God amongst all the lowercase g gods of the universe, then you should be treated godlike. Exalted by definition, because of who he is. This is why why Christians have said for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, trying to summarize this in a simple form, they've said he's very God, of very God. Just, and that almost doesn't make sense, but you're you're trying to to say it in in a clear way that is profound, and you say it and you're saying it in such a way that you'd know exactly what you mean. He's very God of very God. He's not just like God. He's actually divine. We see in his earthly ministry, he accepts worship. Whereas angels say, stop. No, Jesus accepts worship. He's called in the book of Revelation, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. First and the last. He's the one who said, listen to this in John chapter 8. Verse 58. Truly I say, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just to help you with chronology, after Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, that should get us down the right track of thinking, he was before Abraham, but he wasn't before Abraham. Well, yeah, before he became a human being, he was before Abraham. But then it becomes even more profound if you've studied the Bible very long at all because he's saying, I am God's title from Exodus. And we know that Jesus had the ability to make himself clear. Because the response in John chapter 8 is the Jews pick up stones because they want to kill him for blasphemy. You don't go walking around as a good prophet saying you're God. But you do if you are. Why talk about Jesus so much? Well, because he's God. And it would be silly not to, it would be wrong not to. Treat him like God. If he's God, it makes sense. Number two, another thing we can observe from our passage, another reason to exalt Jesus and, and emphasize Jesus so much is because he is the servant. Our text says he is a servant, but I think I can prove to you he's the servant as a servant. So he has a quality with God, we see in verse 6, but then how about verse 7? But emptied himself. It's a way of describing humility. Setting aside privileges. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So he doesn't become less than God. That would be impossible. But he, he, he adds. Uh, Bible students have said this is subtraction by addition. He's humbling himself, but, but not by getting rid of anything. But he's humbling himself by adding something. He's becoming a human being. Okay then. Taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. See, there's his humility. There's his servanthood. He's becoming one of us. He's becoming a human being. We call it the incarnation, taking on flesh. Uh, uh, Human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we would emphasize, emphasize, emphasize Jesus because he's the servant By definition, given who he is, no one else could do this because because he's very God of very God. He's divine and he becomes a human being. He humbles himself. Our text here doesn't talk about God's love for us. We can look at that in other passages, but certainly it has has love implied. He's going to do this for us. He's going to be the ultimate servant. Now, it's even better than you think, though. I want to say trust me, but I don't think you should trust any pastor just by virtue of the fact that they're a pastor. Lots of wolves in sheep's clothing. It's better than you even think. Because Paul's verbiage in Philippians didn't just come out of the sky. It didn't just come from his, from his education The way he's speaking, the way he's talking, the servanthood theme and idea comes from the Old Testament and it really shines through in the book of Isaiah. He's using Isaiah kind of language in describing Jesus as a servant. Okay, that seems good to be humble. That's virtuous. No, 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 no. It's even way better than that. If Jesus is a servant who becomes one of us, that means He is the exclamation point. That means He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that we've been waiting for before we knew we were waiting for Him. He's the one that God was promising in anticipation for all of those years. In Isaiah, you have the nation of Israel, as God's servant. And then specifically at times you have the the king, like David, is the servant of God. And so he's to do the right thing on behalf of the people and as a result of doing the right thing, there'll be blessing for the people, okay? He represents them. And even Israel is to do the right thing and they're to be a blessing to the nations, Okay? Again and again, I don't want you to take my word for it. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read some of the Isaiah texts that that get to this servant theme that Paul clearly utilizes in Philippians chapter 2. Isaiah 37, 35, my servant David. Isaiah 41, verse 8, Israel, my servant. Isaiah 41, verse 9, you are my servant. I've chosen you. Talking about Israel. But then we get to chapter 42. And it says this, Behold my servant, and we think, oh, it's Israel or one of the kings, whom I uphold, my chosen, still, that's how he speaks of Israel, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And it's almost like one of those verses where you see a shift and it's it's like a tweener. And you think there's something else going on here that goes beyond the fallen king like David. It goes beyond the Israel nation that's supposed to do the right thing and be blessed and they keep doing the wrong things. And there's reason we would think like that. Even if we want to cheat and look at the New Testament, Luke chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus is described as God's chosen. He's using this kind of language. Then Isaiah 44, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Then we get to Isaiah 52, and if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that Isaiah 52 comes before, you don't even have to be familiar with the Bible, you know it comes before Isaiah 53, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you're like, oh, that, that's the great messianic one. That's, that's talking about Jesus. Yeah, it's all been heading that direction fallen kings supposed to do the right thing and bring blessing they don't the nation do the right thing bring blessing they don't chapter 42 up oh, sounds like maybe the way jesus is spoken of then we get to 52 ah it's getting we're getting warmer Behold, my servant, it says in verse 13, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance that his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Well, that's talking about Israel being faithful in a way Israel wasn't faithful. And now we're starting to do crosstalk. And then we get to chapter 53. The righteous one. Ah, Israel, Israel never lived up to that one. The righteous one, my servant. Make many to be accounted righteous. Oh, representation. His righteousness makes many to be accounted righteous. That would be for believers. And he shall bear their iniquities. He's the substitute. He's the substitute to take away their sins. And it goes on to say more great things, but for the sake of time, we can't talk about them right now. I just wanted to have you see when Jesus is a servant in Philippians. He's utilizing an Old Testament image, and it's the image that would be anticipating the substance that we should have all been waiting for. The servant who would take away our iniquities, who would do the right thing. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about obedience. Obedience. Who would obey, and God would reward him and those he represents, and exalt him and following those he represents. (laughs) Ha 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 ha! He's the servant. Sometimes people say it's bad. It's a bad idea to read your New Testament theology back into the Old Testament. I agree. This isn't from the New Testament. It's from the old. Read Isaiah throughout and you see it building, 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 building. And now we can take our legitimate Old Testament theology and see it in the New. Man, you talk about Jesus a lot. Yep. He's the servant. He's the one Maybe we weren't waiting for, but we were supposed to be waiting for, because he was the one that God would bring to bring completion, redemption, like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 talks about. Central to everything. He's the one. Let's move on to number three, even though I don't want to. Another reason to talk about Jesus a lot and exalt him is because he is the obedient one. He is the obedient one. We've, we've already seen this, but I, but I couldn't resist. Look there again in verse 7 at the end. In the likeness of men, okay? So being born in the likeness of men, and verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why would I say it's a real big deal to say he is the obedient one? Wow! So let's exalt him because he's the obedient one. Well, I would say that because God requires obedience. He requires obedience of you. He requires obedience of me. And that is the bad news. Right? Right? From the very beginning, he's required obedience. And if you just think about it logically, it would only make sense for him to require obedience. Unless he's not God. But if he's God, what he says goes. And so he's required always that people treat him like he's God, otherwise he would have mental disorders. Love me like I'm God because I am. That was a requirement, essentially. Do what I say. And love your neighbor too. He's always required obedience. And none of us have offered it. Starting with Adam. You can just make a mental note if you'd like to. Romans chapter 5 verse 19. It says that there's one man, talking about Adam, and his disobedience. And through him the many were made sinners. Adam was supposed to obey Very simple job, especially when you have a perfect wife, right? Then he blamed her. He's supposed to obey. But what's highlighted in Romans 5 is disobedience, and that led to sin. But that was the requirement. It's always been the requirement. It's still the requirement today. But we can't obey. We can't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength because we're sinful by nature, and so we don't. Jesus is the obedient one. Romans 5 goes on to say in verse 19, so by the one man, talking about Jesus, the other representative of humanity, through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's worth raising my voice. Some octaves. Through the one man's obedience, the many Ah uh, he represents will be made righteous. Will be treated like their obeyers. In other words, they'll be treated like their law keepers. Is what it means. Like they've loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The man you talk about Jesus a lot. Yeah, he obeyed. He obeyed perfectly. He obeyed perfectly on behalf of everyone who would ever believe in Him. So that God would see you now as if you're a perfect obeyer. And by the way, that's the requirement, so it's a really good idea. You see? So I I like to trick people and say, I just said it to someone on a plane this last week. True or false, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. And the lady next to me, I think, was one to elbow her husband and get him to answer wrong. She knew it was a trick question. And she said, I want to say false, but I have a feeling you're going to tell me it's true. (laughs) Yeah! God requires absolute perfect obedience. And it would be wrong for him not to. Because he's a just judge. He's fair. Through one man's obedience obedient to the point of death that's how much he obeyed he obeyed to the point of death climactic point even death on a cross oh yeah that's why we make such a big deal out of Jesus because if you believe in him you trust in him you rest in him his obedience is credited to you because he's a representative Oh, it's so awesome. That's why he became a human being. You can cross-reference over to Philippians chapter 3 where Paul develops this in a different kind of setting. In verse 9, it says, And, and be found in him that is united to Jesus by faith, not having a righteousness, not having an obedience to the law of my own that comes from the law. And by the way, that would be impossible because we're sinners. We're already lawbreakers. So we can't obey the law perfectly because we're already sinners. But that which comes through faith, through trust in Christ. Ah, chapter 2, verse 8, the obedient one. That's why it would make sense to have faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, as in it's provided from God. It's according to His grace that depends on faith, faith in Christ in our context. How about verse 10? How about this? That I may know Him and the power of his resurrection. Ah, it, be, it can become mine. It, be, it can become yours. New life in him. And may share his sufferings become, becoming like him in his death. That is with the sure promise of resurrection because it's effective that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And that is the means possible. We've got to move on again. Again. I just want you to know we talk about Jesus because He is the obedient one and that's who you need Him to be. I mean, think about the practicality of this. The goodness of God. I mean, there's all different things we can think about, but just just think about what it, what it could mean to have peace with God and to know that you have peace with God. The Bible says not counting your trespasses against you. I mean, the, the psychological piece alone is, is worth the price of admission. <sighs> you know? But it's more than psychological. That should actually come as the result of knowing that I have peace with God. How? How could that be? Because Jesus is the obedient one. Even death on a cross, you can't get more obedient. So good. That's why we exalt him, because of who he is and what he's done. Let's move on to number four. Another reason why we would want to exalt Jesus. Number four... Because he is exalted. Exalt Jesus because he is exalted. Think about it. I want to exalt Jesus because Jesus is exalted and that gets me in touch with reality. How about verse 9? Therefore God has highly exalted him. See, he's highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So I'm here to tell you, as profound as it may not be, you should exalt Christ because He is exalted. You see, and when you do that, you're not the crazy one. (laughs) You're not the nutter. You're not the cray-cray as we say today. You're in touch with reality. God has highly exalted him. And you're saying, I agree with that. I make a big deal out of Jesus because the Father has exalted him and makes a big deal out of him. Ultimate reality. We live in the land of make-believe. Lots of reality denying going on. That's why I love coming to church at least once a week to get in touch with reality. He is highly exalted, so it makes sense that we would exalt him. Sometimes it's only for an hour a week we make sense. Exalt him because he's exalted. Speaking of crazy, did you know there's something called theologicophobia? The fear of theology. See, You're not the crazy one if you think Jesus is exalted because he is exalted. But speaking of crazy, there's such a thing as a phobia of these things. According to phobiasource.com, just a little levity. The fear of theology is often escalated when an individual considers the implications of faith and the potential that we are designed to follow an order for living. This view is often in conflict with the notion that we are absolutely free to pursue anything we want to pursue to engage in anything that pleases us. That right there is worth the price of admission, but, but I'll keep reading. This fear may find the theologic-phobe with not only a fear of the study of theology, but also a fear and perhaps even loathing for others who subscribe to the belief included in the study of theology. I end with this. Other symptoms may also include air hunger, trembling, Elevated heart rates, weeping, screaming, anger, and nausea. Happy Easter, I couldn't resist. (laughs) That's crazy. To exalt Jesus is not crazy. Number five, Jesus is to be exalted because... He will be universally exalted. He will be universally exalted. Verse 10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should, some of your translations are more helpful, shall, as in like legal decree, not as in advice. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So one day, everyone will confess. Confess means agree. God has highly exalted him. He's the ultimate. And one day, every single person everywhere and anywhere will say he is the ultimate ruler. He's the ultimate king. For us as Christians, we talk to those of you who aren't Christians about sin, about death, about mortality, about Jesus, and we urge you to trust in Him because we think we're better than you? No. No. Because we know that one day everyone will agree and we don't want you to be in agreement as a lost person. But you will one day be in agreement. Our desire is that that, that you would trust in Christ and agree with God now before it's too late. It's out of love. It's out of passion. It's out of compassion. Because we know that the day of reckoning is coming. So we're called to be men and women and boys and girls who tell people good news. The good news is Jesus is the obedient one. Jesus is the one that can take your guilt away, take your sins away. It's just fueled by this desire to have you be in touch with reality before it's actually bad news. The ultimate Lord. Number six, Jesus is to be exalted because he glorifies the Father. This one is easy to do. He glorifies the Father. In verse 10, it goes on to say, To the glory of God the Father. All of this happens to him for the glory of God the Father. We're going to study the gospel according to John uh, and not too much longer we're going to see a lot of this. The Son being glorified and the Son being glorified and doing the, what He does and He does it for the glory of the Father and it goes back and forth. They're working together in this amazing thing that's going on, this, this redemptive work. The exaltation and glorification of the Son culminating in resurrection from the dead and then ascension Highly exalted, glorified. That happens to glorify the Father. I'm not even sure where it all begins, where it all ends. But the point is, it's right. It's ultimate good. Let's move on to number seven. Jesus is to be exalted. Exalted. Because he is the source of spiritual fruit. Jesus is the source of spiritual fruit. I needed to go outside of chapter 2 to see this but I thought it was worth seeing. Because Jesus lived a perfect life as a substitute he died an atoning death He was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, claims us as his own. He also leaves us with his spirit. And because of all that he has done, now spiritual fruit comes. Okay, Lives change in our actions. So far, the things we've been talking about don't really have much to do with the way we live in the here and now. But because of what He's done, because of His resurrection, we've been raised with Him, newness of life. We have the Spirit and spiritual fruit can come as a result. Let me put it this way. Any truly good thing that you do, lots of relative good in the world, believers and unbelievers alike, but true goodness that is done by you, with right motive included, doesn't come because you're such a great person. It comes because of the work of Jesus. But it does come. And it's cool to see where it comes from. It's beyond cool. How about Philippians chapter 1, verse 11? Philippians 1, 11 says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness, or the, the fruit that righteousness produces, you could even translate it. It comes from righteousness, and our righteousness comes from Christ, because look, that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Fruit of righteousness, fruit meaning good behavior, right actions, true goodness that comes from someone's life, that is tied to Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes from Him. And so, make a huge, huge, big deal out of Jesus. Because any true good that any Christian ever does, unfortunately we do lots of non-good, but any good that you, you do as a Christian, any Christian actually does, comes because of Him. So He receives the glory and He receives the honor. So we make a big deal. We make a big deal. There's a saying that says, I'm not acting the way I ought to act, but I'm not acting the way I used to act. Okay, I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I once was. That's the way Christians talk, because... We're accepted by God, not because of the way we act. We're accepted by God because of what Christ has done. And yet, our lives are supposed to be changing. We're supposed to see fruit. We were dead spiritually, now we're alive. I just want to remind you this morning that where that life comes from is from Christ and and Him giving His Spirit and the good that does show its beautiful face at times, as opposed to rearing its ugly head comes because of Jesus. So the next time you do the right thing, and you even think perhaps you did it with the right motive, I know sometimes it's few and far between. I mean, even the Apostle Paul says, I don't even question my own motives because I don't really even know. But there are those moments in your life where you think, that's not how I used to respond. That's not how I responded last time. I'm encouraged. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ for giving you his spirit because of the gospel. Man, we should talk a lot about Jesus. (laughs) He's our hope. He's our righteousness. He's the source of our fruit. He is the exalted one and it would only make sense that we would exalt him as well. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning for a church like this with all of its flaws and weaknesses where we can gather together and hear the word of God and hear explanation that would make sense and stir our hearts. I'm even reminded of what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere where Christians are to be zealous for good deeds. We are to pursue them. So help us to do that because of what Christ has done so that we can give him honor and glory and even have others see the gloriousness of Christ in the actions that we carry out. In Jesus' name, amen.